Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Tom, thank you so much for being here today. Welcome back to the show. Second Timers Club right here. Yes, thank you very much for asking me. Well, one would think that growing up royal would be a dream, but it is certainly not without its challenges. So how is being a royal child not maybe as glamorous or covetable as it may seem? I think the biggest problem uh, if you grow up in the royal family is that the the way children are, are raised is very, very similar. It's hardly changed in 600 years. So, mm-hmm. so you've got children, I mean, from the time they're born, uh, the day-to-day care is is farmed out to other people. So it's very difficult for you to make, you know, if you're a royal child, very difficult for you to make a, a real emotional bond with your parents because the tradition is that children were brought to see their, you know, the, their parents for half an hour in the morning and perhaps half an hour in the evening. And they were always dressed very formally for the meeting. And that's all they saw of their of their parents, of, of you know, the king and the queen, if, if they were your parents. And it even happened with, uh, you know, the, the, uh, the younger princes and princesses when they married, their children would be looked after by paid staff. And the problem with paid staff is that, you know, you might get someone and the child would bond with that person for a year or two, but then that person would leave and there'd be another another paid nanny to look after the child. So, I mean, the famous example of this is when uh, when Elizabeth II was coming back from a three month tour overseas, she got off the royal train in London and her, I think he was about five at the time, Prince Charles, her, her son, was brought to the station to meet her. And when she, when she got off the train, in full view of all the cameras, she shook Charles's hand. She didn't <laughs> give him a hug, hug wow. or anything. Mm. And I think the reason the royals have always done this is that they've got this obsession with the idea that, that children must grow up really quickly. They've got to be tough. I'm talking really about princes now rather than princesses. They've got to be really tough. So they make, they get other people to look after them, to toughen them up, and then they send them away to school. So they, when they're a bit older, say 10 or 11, <laughs> their parents see them even less because mm. they're away at boarding school. I and mean, we all know, for example, Charles was sent to a boarding school in Scotland. And he ever since leaving that school, <laughs> he's complained about how terrible it was. Mm-hmm. It was cold. He was bullied. Um, it was a very Spartan kind of regime, not much to eat, no heating at all. But there was this idea, you know, that you you've got to be if you're a royal prince, you've got to be tough. You mustn't be you mustn't be clingy. Um, you mustn't be emotionally needy. And the paradox is that when you when you treat children like this, what you actually produce is the opposite of what you intended. You produce really needy um, adults, which is why Charles and Diana were never going to make it because she had the same kind of upbringing. 
as he did. So you've got these two needy people desperately in search of some kind of emotional solidity, and they were never going to find it in each other. But having said all that, I think the current, the, the, the very young generation, when by that I mean George, Louis, Charlotte, um, and Meghan and Harry's children, I think it will be different for them. They'll still have people to do the sort of day-to-day -day work, you know, changing the diapers and all that sort of stuff but they, they will spend a lot more time with their children than was traditional but it is extraordinary how long it's taken for those changes to, to come about it's incredible mm -hmm. so kind of an extension of that question just simply put what is it like to grow up royal um, it's it's immense privilege I mean somebody said to me who worked for Harry when he was young Harry thought that it was almost as if by magic, he threw all his clothes on the floor at the end of the day. And a day later, they were they were washed, ironed, beautifully folded and back mm. in his in his chest of drawers and his wardrobe. Mm. And when you grow up like that, it is if absolutely everything is done for you. you. Don't need to do anything for yourself. I mean, it's it's it is extraordinarily luxurious, you know, even even maybe you know the, the children of millionaires they don't they may get looked after in the same way and have everything that they want never have to make a cup of tea never have to clean their rooms or their clothes but the royals also get this deference all the people who work for them there's a kind of deference which actually makes I think it makes royal princes and princesses feel very very special which is good in one way but also bad in another way because they become i think they become prima donnas they become very entitled and they they have tantrums when when they're adults when things are not done for them in in you know for example i know william you know the one occasion his shoes were not polished properly he didn't he didn't like the way and he had a complete tantrum about mm. this and and his father Charles is very similar you know so I think it is you are it, it is the most luxurious the most wonderfully deferential life and of course you're going from you know you're going from Buckingham Palace this huge mansion or from Kensington Palace very similar you're spending the summer at Balmoral another palace with servants that, or you're going to Sandringham in Norfolk all these places, everyone defers to you and you, mm -hmm. and you can, you know, you can have it whatever you want um, for, for, and you, you expect that. So you grow up to sort of expect that the whole world will treat you in the same way. And so when when they bump up against the outside world, maybe in the form of the press, they realise that the rest of the world is not so deferential. Of course, a century ago, the rest of the world was deferential, mm -hmm. but that, that part of it has changed. So in a way, I mean, the reason my book is called um, gilded youth is that it, it, they do have a sort of gilded childhood. It's it's golden, but they're in a golden cage. So it's this it's this tension between, you know, they can't they can't go out and play with their friends whenever they want, but when they're at home, everyone defers to them. They get everything done for them. They're treated well. They're treated like royalty, but of mm -hmm. course they're in a they're in a prison at the same time. Well, we know they get a lot of attention and. I suppose they don't know any other way, but is the fishbowl and the fame just something you get used to or what is that like for, for them? 
I think many members of the royal family find it extremely difficult because they, as they grow up, they become addicted to uh, the outside world saying only good things about them. So when the outside world doesn't say good things, is critical of them, I think it's, it's immensely stressful. I mean, it's probably not unlike, you know, if you're a film star and you've, you've had a lot of praise for your last film, and then you're in another film and everyone says you're, you're a terrible actor, it's a terrible mm. performance. You know, I think that's really difficult to cope with. Um, I mean, Mick Jagger famously said, he's, you know, he's 80 now, he's been famous since he was 17 or 18. He said, you, ne you never really get used to it because you, you pretend that you're not interested, you don't care what the world says about you, but there's another part of you that deeply cares. Mm -hmm. um, so I think you are in a fishbowl if you're a child or an adult in the royal family because everyone is outside peering in mm -hmm. and you have to sort of somehow you know you can only be a private person in a very limited way your public property uh, so i think in many ways the royals find that very very difficult to cope i mean if you take diana um she found it immensely difficult to cope with and i don't think charles would say that his life has been a happy one you yeah. know, and it's all to do with the fact that he grew up in this, you know, by modern standards, if they didn't have lots of money and they weren't the royal family, you'd say it was very dysfunctional. Sure. Oh, yeah. Well, you write that, I, I found this was very interesting from the book, that royal childhoods are relatively unchanging throughout history. So I feel like there is a, a shift happening, particularly with uh, Prince George, Princess Charlotte, and Prince Louis. So does that hold true that royal childhoods are unchanging throughout history, even with the Wales children? I think the big change it, it, it has come with the children of William and Kate. Uh, William and, and Harry had the same, essentially the same sort of childhood that they would have had if they'd been born 500 years earlier. But I think in marrying Kate, who comes from a, you know, a fairly ordinary background, but more importantly, a background where, you know, her parents were very involved with her childhood in the normal way. You know, she's a very warm character. She's very stable, emotionally stable, because she didn't have dozens of paid nannies who changed all the time. And I think William has sort of recognised that. She is, I mean, William, I think, is... <clears throat> quite a damaged adult, damaged by this strange mm -hmm. royal upbringing. Um, and of course, also the fact that his mother died when he was 15 in horrible circumstances. Mm -hmm. But I think he's drawn to Kate because she represents the solidity, the warmth that he didn't have as a royal child growing up. Um, and I think he's determined, and Kate certainly is from people I've spoken to who, who know her, she's determined that her children will get the warmth, the emotional bonding that royal children traditionally don't get. And I, it's one of those instances where where having someone coming in from the outside will genuinely change things. I mean, if William had married a princess from another country, it would have carried on in the same way. Mm -hmm. So I think this is the generation when things will change and they'll change for the better. I, you know, I think the big worry, the big worry for Kate and William is that not so much for George who will become the heir to the throne, but as in every generation, what do the others do? Mm -hmm. You know, if you're Charlotte and you're Louis, you can't go and work, you know, you can't go get a job in, I don't know, as an accountant or, or a journalist <laughs> right. or something. You just can't do it. So you have to find 
meaning in what you can do and not obsess about the fact that you're not number one, which is Harry's problem. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. You know, this book is compelling for so many reasons, definitely about being a royal child, but I found the parts about being a royal parent equally as interesting. So why is the royal family, at least save for this current generation, I don't think anybody would say this about, for example, William and Kate, but why is the royal family so synonymous with dysfunctional parenting? Because I truly do think of the royal family as, as having quite a few dysfunctional parents. Oh, there's there's no question. The royal family is absolutely stuffed with dysfunctional parents. <laughs> yeah. I mean, if you, if you take the 18th century as the start, the, the three Georges, George I, the second and third, apart from the fact that they didn't see much of their children, they positively hated their sons. I mean, really hated. Um, Queen Caroline said about her son, um, let, let's hope he dies before we do. I mean, she wow. really, really hated him. So then you've got Queen Victoria, who couldn't bear to be in the same room as her son and heir, later Ed, Edward VII. She hated him because he was a bit of a womanizer. He was lazy. He wasn't academic. So she absolutely loathed him. And then coming into the 20th century, it just carries on. I mean, um, the Queen, the late Queen Elizabeth II, her father, George VI, once said about his father, George V, the man was an absolute monster. And mm. so I think the problem is, even if you've grown up with the consciousness that your parents were terrible and were very harsh to you and very distant, even if you 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 somehow struggle not to be very similar. I mean, it's 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 one of those cliches of psychology. We take, for example, you know, uh, children who who uh, girls especially who who are abused when they when they become adults, they're often attracted to yes. and develop relationships with abusers. Yeah, the very thing you would think would not happen, and it's because we're always drawn to things we know. You know, if we grow up with this strange kind of parenting, we become. We, we, we turn into our parents because mm -hmm. that's the example that we had when we were children. It's, you know, Philip Larkin, the poet, said once, um, said, man hands on misery to man. And, and I think that that happens a lot in the royal family. But again, I think we do have to make a distinction because William is one of the, probably the, one of the most intelligent of all the royals, mm -hmm. certainly the royal heirs to the throne. And he, I think he is making big efforts to, you know, to break the vicious cycle, as it were, of being a bad parent. Yeah. Well, I'm going to take a little bit of a pivot here. So I, I wonder how many of our listeners actually know this little piece, but Princess Elizabeth and Princess Margaret's governess, Crawfee, betrayed them and wrote a book about the inner workings of the royal family. The royal family has been nervous since then that nannies might do a Crawfee. So how do they safeguard their hires to make sure that won't happen again? Well, when they when they hire nannies now, the first thing they do, which wasn't done in, in Crawfee's time, um, they make them sign a what, what is effectively a, a con confidentiality agreement. So there are legal consequences if they talk to the press or they write a book about their lives with the royal children. But I think also as something that makes a bigger difference because of course, even if you've signed a confidentiality agreement, you can still talk to a journalist off the record and, and not be identified. Mm -hmm. So that 
that does change things, but it doesn't change things perhaps as much as the royal family would like. What's really made a difference is that nannies are much better treated than they were in the past. I mean, if you take um, if you take Marion Crawford Crawfee, who looked after um, Princess Margaret and Princess Elizabeth, um, before she got into trouble for writing her book, she had gone to Queen Mary. Um, the girl's um, grandmother and said, look, I, I, I need to leave because I want to get married. And Queen Mary said, what do you mean you want to get married? What will the princesses do without you? And the implication mm. of this conversation was that Queen Mary simply couldn't understand that someone who worked for the royal family wasn't prepared to devote, you know, 24 seven all her life to her job. And that was the sort of attitude to, to nannies. Uh, and I think in the end, if you treat people badly like that, eventually they will leave uh, and they will say things that you won't like. So now in the royal family, uh, there is a much it's a much kinder environment for staff. You know, they're much better treated. They're better paid. Assumptions aren't made about the fact that, you know, you own them body and soul. Right. Um <laughs> To, to go back to, I mean, one of the interesting things I think about uh, about Crawfee's book is that she was under the impression that she'd been given permission by um, by the Queen Mother to to write about the the princesses. So there was a bit of a failure of communication. I think uh, she thought she'd had a green light to do it, um, but in fact, when the book appeared, there was too much in it. Uh, for the royal family to to accept and so poor Crawford was shunned for the rest of her life I mean myself I think it was a bit harsh because anyone who's read um, Crawford's book it is the most it's just full of praise for the princesses it doesn't really say anything mm -hmm. about them that anyone needed to be upset about but I think it was the principle yeah. that you know somebody should have said something publicly about what they were doing privately for the royal family Right. Um, but I mean, other people have written memoirs and, and uh, I think we're all a bit less sensitive, even the royal family are less sensitive, you know, unless someone says something really terrible about them. Yeah. You know what? There are so many, Tom, eccentric and bizarre stories in this book. Is there one that stands out to you the most as, whoa, that is really wild? Well, maybe not wild, but I thought well, one of the most telling stories and, and also I think very eccentric, one of my favourite stories is that um, uh, the late Queen Elizabeth II, when she was a very small child, she began to have these, every afternoon she would, <laughs> she would eat, uh, they, they, were, they were called jam circles, they were mm -hmm. tiny pieces of bread cut in a circle with jam on, and she had them every afternoon at tea time. And when she was in her 90s, <coughs> excuse me, she was still eating the same tiny <laughs> round jam sandwiches. And I think that was part of her, you know, something that hasn't been discussed much is that with girls, with um, Elizabeth particularly, uh, the late queen, when she was growing up, her father was actually very affectionate. He, he wasn't able to demonstrate it much, but he was more affectionate, partly because she was a girl rather than a boy. Um, but the strange childhood produced in Elizabeth, what I suppose we'd call now sort of OCD 
thing going on where you know she had to put her shoes every night they had to be in precisely the same place and she had to eat these these little um sandwiches that i've mentioned and i think it was ritual it was duty and ritual that made elizabeth ii such a successful queen but how extraordinary that something she loved as a as a seven-year-old she was still doing as a 90-year-old and mm -hmm. you know i think that that says a lot about how she, how rigid she had to make her life in yeah. order to get through it. It does. Well, aside from that, was there a piece of your research that you found really fascinating to learn? Um, well, there were some surprises. I hadn't realized that, um, for example, that, and it was a very, it's a very sad story. I knew just in a very general sense that, for example, uh, Charles had been horribly bullied at his his boarding school, um, but I hadn't realised that he. You know, a lot of the time, many nights, he was actually physically assaulted. The other boys would, you know, they would actually punch him. They beat him up when he was trying to sleep. Um, so, it, you know, that was a real shock to re to read about that. Also, I think, you know, one of one of my favourite stories was that <laughs> another one was that. Um, poor Diana, when she, you know, when things fell apart with Charles and she was, well, as she saw it, she was effectively a lot of the time imprisoned in, in Kensington Palace. And I love the fact that she would sneak out in disguise. <laughs> and um, uh, uh, apparently on one occasion, she, I, I don't know if people know Kensington Gardens, which used to be the grounds of Kensington Palace, but are now open to the public. There's a round pond where people used to sail their boats, very close to the palace. And, and Diana was once sitting <laughs> on a bench overlooking the pond in disguise. And she spent about 20 minutes um, talking to a, uh, a, a rough sleeper, a, a chap who was, you know, a, 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 well, effectively a tramp. And apparently they got on like a house on fire, but he had no idea who she was. Wow. I just, I just love that. And um, um, she was very good at that kind. She wasn't judgmental. So, mm -hmm. you know, that, that really rang true to me when, when someone told me the story. <laughs> That's amazing. And that, you know, she, I mean, that was her charm, right? Is that she could get along with anybody, talk to anybody. And that's, that's why she was so beloved. And, you know, in the old days, parents, as you mentioned earlier in the episode would see their children for roughly 30 minutes, maybe an hour a day. We know that nannies and governesses were mostly raising these children. And in some cases, the parents were kind of strangers to them. I do believe, as you've as you've mentioned in this episode so far, that then Princess Elizabeth was close with her parents, closer maybe than normal at that time. But she was a standoffish parent herself, Queen Elizabeth was. Why, why was this? Was it because for most of her parenting, save for, I guess, the first four years, she was queen? Yeah, I think um, Elizabeth was in a difficult position because um, when she became queen, uh, she felt, because, you know, we all know the big thing about Elizabeth II was, was her, I, I won't say obsession, but she was absolutely determined to put duty first. Mm -hmm. And what that meant was, she inevitably put um, Anne and Charles, she put them second, even though they really needed her. And even though, as you say, 
she had had the benefit of a close, warm relationship with her own father. So I think it was the fact that she just felt she had to show the world that she was a queen to be reckoned with. You know, she wasn't going to be a slouch. She was going to really, really do it properly. And so inevitably, you know, for the first few years of Charles and Diana's lives, they were neglected. That said, she also came under huge pressure from uh, advisors in the palace, some of whom they were Victorians. You know, these people in the 1950s, when we had this very young queen, the, the people closest to her telling her what to do and advising her, they'd been born in the, you know, maybe the 1890s. And they had completely absorbed the values and, and attitudes of, you know, of long ago. And so they encouraged her and said, look, you, it's duty is, you know, what you must do. You, must, you mustn't worry about the children because we've got other people to look after them, um, which, which fitted in with the tradition that Elizabeth knew about anyway. So everything, in a sense, conspired uh, to, to make Elizabeth not, uh, you know, and one hates to criticise her, but she wasn't an ideal parent to those first two children, Anne and Charles. Mm -hmm. And actually, we know that because 10 years later, roughly, when she'd settled into the job, as it were, and, and, and Andrew and Edward came along, she spent much more time with them. You know, mm -hmm. she, would, she would push them in a, in a pushchair around the grounds of Buckingham Palace or have them in the room when she was going through her, her papers, her government papers. And I think she realised that she'd made a terrible mistake with the first two children. Mm. Um, and she was determined to try and put that right with the, the second two children, you know, who were born in the 60s. I mean, I think she only partly succeeded because, like her father, I mean, she, she was a warm character, but she was very reserved. You know, famously, um, on one occasion, she ran up to her father when she was a girl as if to put her arms around him and he shrunk he shrank back you know he just was really awkward even with his own daughter and I think Elizabeth inherited a bit of that so although she tried she she's not a very she wasn't a very relaxed sort of person she didn't like hugs even from her own children she was you know many people who have to do the sort of work that Elizabeth had to do being a monarch they would have a sort of public persona which is more formal and a private persona which was very different which was much warmer less formal Elizabeth didn't really have that um she was all of a piece you know she even privately she was very formal and she mm -hmm. got that from the fact that although her father was a very warm character he couldn't show it and she found it difficult to show it too so again we go back to this thing where you know even if you don't like what you had as a child you it's very difficult for you to be a very different kind of parent mm. um although you know as i've said she tried much harder with with edward and andrew although they were still you know they were still the the you know washing them and and taking them for walks most of it was still done by paid staff when you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.
Well, we know Charles turned to Louis Mountbatten to fill some of the void that existed in his relationship with his parents. So can you tell us a little bit about the role he played in Charles's life and his success? Well, Lord Mountbatten is a very interesting character uh, because he showed an enormous amount of interest in Charles. In a way, I'm afraid that Charles's father, Philip, didn't. Um, Charles relied on him hugely and, and, and loved him in a way perhaps he found it impossible to love his own father. So Mountbatten, as it were, became a sort of substitute father. Um, he, he wasn't a particularly warm character, but it was the fact that he was very interested in and very sympathetic towards Charles that, that made them bond together. But um, I, think, I think my own view is Mountbatten was, um, I think he was a sort of dangerous uh, father figure for for Charles because he encouraged this almost medieval idea that um, one Charles should just um, you know treat Camilla or any other girlfriend he had at the time as I don't know how to put this as you know just as as something lightweight you know he should have as many relationships as possible mm-hmm. uh, but not treat any of, the, any of them as serious relationships. And then he should find someone very aristocratic, very innocent and very young so that basically she would be compliant. And that's why in the end, Charles married Diana. It was the maneuverings of, of Mountbatten and Diana's grandmother to some extent. And Diana's grandmother was a great friend of the queen mother too. So they all got together to try and make this marriage which was an arranged marriage between and they didn't care about whether or not especially Mountbatten whether or not Charles and and Diana were actually suited to each other he saw it completely Mountbatten saw it completely in dynastic terms you know Mm -hmm. someone said someone said about Mountbatten that his his vanity was monumental he believed he was a he believed he was a sort of kingmaker. He loved the fact that he could move these pieces around on the chessboard, but he forgot that they were flesh and blood. They had feelings, you know. So when he effectively arranged this marriage, he, he it really didn't bother him. But he he actually said to Charles, and I know this because I, I interviewed um, a close friend of Mountbatten's who worked on their estate down in Hampshire here in England for about thirty years. Anyway, he said that Mountbatten used to say to Charles, look, you can, once you're married, if you marry someone young and innocent, you can do your duty and have an heir and a spare, but you can still sleep with whoever you want, which was the wow. medieval way. <laughs> you know, kings up until Queen Victoria and beyond, you take Edward VII, they, they had mistresses as a matter of course. They were married, but they also had, you know, Edward VII was an absolute monster to his poor wife. He once said, oh, she's my brood mare. Wow, you know, just she's there just to just to re, just to have children for me. Wow. And Edwardson, as we know, you know, he was he was completely open about his mistresses. He'd go to the theatre with Alice Keppel, who was his his mistress. And curiously, as you probably know, I always found this fascinating. <laughs> Alice Keppel, who was Edward the Seventh's mistress, his his main mistress, um, she was the great grandmother of Camilla who was mm-hmm. Charles's mistress. So mm-hmm. it's a very incestuous world. And I'm afraid um, Mountbatten was part of that. And, you know, he he didn't always do the best thing for Charles. Wow, yeah. Um, so much to say there, but <laughs> that, 
yeah, we'll just move on because brood mare is still in my head over here. But oh, it's such anyway. an awful phrase. It's terrible, <laughs> awful, isn't it? Awful. Uh, awful, 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 awful. Anyway, yeah. so I think that this is incredibly compelling because just because you're born first and are therefore the heir doesn't necessarily mean that you are the best tempered, let's say, of the sibling lot to take on the job of monarch. Example. I think many, if not most, would say temperamentally, maybe Margaret would have been, made a better monarch than Elizabeth, at least because she was so gregarious and outgoing. Maybe Anne might have made a better monarch than Charles because she is tougher, quote unquote. We have heard, obviously, so much about this as of late with at the top of the year spare coming out. But how does the heir and the spare dynamic impact royal kids? And do you think it is lessening now with, let's say, George and Charlotte and Louis? The, 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 the heir and the spare problem, which goes back generations, I don't think anyone's really managed to find a way to make it work so that people aren't upset, people aren't hurt. I mean, uh, you mentioned Margaret, who Margaret, Princess Margaret, always believed that she, deep down that she would have made a better monarch than her sister. Exactly as you say, for the simple reason that she was really good at talking to people. She was very lively. She was vivacious. Um, she seemed to connect with people in a way that um, her sister uh, couldn't. And I think it all goes back to childhood where famously um, George VI said that um, Elizabeth was his pride and Margaret was his joy. Mm -hmm. And in many ways, I think Margaret, for all her self-belief, I think at another level, she probably realised that she wouldn't have been able to carry off the need for seriousness and formality that you have to have if you're the monarch. I mean, I think she did. She was, you know, she was working on two levels. One level where she thought, I'm confident, I'm outgoing, I'm fun. That would that would make me a great monarch. But there was another bit of her, I think, thinking, well, would it really, you know, would I have got into trouble? Would I have brought you know, uh, criticism to the monarchy, which in fact she did, but but it did, I think to a large extent, it did destroy her life being a spare because she never found a role. She always felt somebody, somebody said, oh, Margaret's problem is whenever she goes to, uh, you know, to a charitable dinner or to open, you know, something, um, she always had the feeling that she was second best, that the organisers would have preferred to have her sister because she was queen. Mm -hmm. uh, so, and, and I think uh, in addition to that, that sense that she was second best and was always only asked if they couldn't get, you know, the queen, her sister. In addition to that, it was this sense that she felt she was very artistic and talented, but that being a member of the royal family meant that she could never develop that. You know, she couldn't go on the stage, she couldn't be a singer. And so I think perhaps more than any other spare, Margaret really suffered, you know, and so she really, she, she drank and smoked herself to an early grave. Mm -hmm. um, I think we are seeing that repeated, not in such stark terms, but there are elements of similarity. When we look at William and Harry, there's this tension. I think, I think Harry cannot help resenting always being, you know, it's slightly in second place. And you can imagine how frustrating it is in any other field. Um, if you work really hard and you're really talented, 
it wouldn't matter whether you were the third child or the fifth child or the first child. You could get to the top of whatever you'd chosen to do. You can't do that in the royal family. Right. However talented you are, you're always the spare. So it's, you know, and, and so you've got this, this sense that you're trapped, but also you've grown up being told you're marvellous, everyone deferring to you. Mm-hmm. And yet you can't choose to do what you want to do in the world. I think it's a nightmare. You know, it's a total nightmare. Yeah. Um, worse for Harry, I think he was brought up to think, well, whatever you want to do, get someone else to do it, because that's how he grew up. And so, you know, he could have done a rough draft of his book, but he didn't. He got a ghost to write it. He could have, you know, he he basically doesn't even have a stab at things. He's a very passive character who waits for, mm-hmm. you know, someone said he's like a weather vane, you know, the wind blows one way. And he turns and the wind blows the other way and he turns in that direction. And it's part of partly growing up in in the royal family where everything's done for you. Mm-hmm. And partly, um, like Margaret, feeling trapped, feeling I'm talented, but I can't take this talent and do something with it. I'm always just going to be number two because I was born at the wrong time. It's yeah. a bit of a nightmare. Absolutely. Well, with Charles and Diana, you write that two weak characters don't add up to a strong character. They'd often use William as Har- and Harry as, as pawns in their battle. You know, we know Diana's own parents for divorce, as were Fergie's. So can you tell us a little bit about how this affected the boys and their own parenting styles today? Um, I think it's certainly true that... Um, as William and Harry reached sort of, you know, their early teen years, they were fully aware of how bad their parents' marriage was. Because as you say, you know, you, you've got these two weak people looking for a strong person and not finding it in each other. And inevitably the relationship breaks down. And um, because Diana especially felt isolated in, in Kensington Palace, because the restrictions on her were were greater than the restrictions on Charles, because she was a woman, it's very unfair. Um, I think she, I'm not sure she used the the two boys as, I don't think she used them as pawns in, as it were, a game of chess against her husband, not deliberately anyway, but she relied on, especially William, she relied on him in a way that really she should have relied on well, her husband or, yeah. you know, her partner, but she couldn't do that. And she couldn't easily uh, find someone else who was suitable because the whole tangle of the, you know, the breaking down of the relationship, the fact that you had to keep up appearances. And so William became, to some extent, a sort of substitute. I know he said once to her, Mummy, can you stop talking about, about daddy to me? Mm. You know, because she constantly talked to him and complained about Charles. And so I think that was damaging. Um, But because William met Kate, he went to university, you know, through ability, unlike, you know, his father who got into Cambridge just because he was the heir to the throne. And I think William has really, and I said earlier, you know, William is genuinely perhaps more intelligent than previous heirs to the throne. So I think he remembers this, you know, he remembers all this dysfunction and doesn't want to repeat it. And I think he's got the strength of character to avoid repeating it. So this will be the generation where a great deal of the dysfunction happily comes comes to an end. 
you know, I'm just sitting here thinking about how early years work is the work of Kate's life, right? The shaping us in the first five years and how I wish for everyone's sake that the royal family had known how important those first five years are and well absolutely yes yeah and how much we've grown and and just it's so interesting reading your book in particular and then juxtaposing that with Kate's work and just how much we've grown as an institution I say we like I'm a part of it but the royal family has <laughs> grown in in even you know the past what 75 years since Charles was born so Tom, as ever, this is a delight. This is our last question for you. We could probably talk to you all day, but so much in this book, listeners, about royal being a royal child, royal parenting. But I want to close with a question about parenting. What are some added pressures as a parent that would not exist? Because I mean, I'm not a parent yet, but parenting is hard no matter if you're royal or not. But what are some added pressures as a parent that would not exist if they were not royal? I think the main pressure if you're a royal parent is that you you can't do anything with without other people interfering. So people forget that, you know, although Charles and William as parents appear to us on the outside to be able to make the decisions about how they parent, there is, and this was especially true for Charles, there's a sort of, there's the old guard, the advisors, the courtiers, at the palace who resist change. And for all the fact that, you know, Charles was, was always going to be king, it doesn't mean he can resist the pressure of the old guard because they are, courtiers are very powerful. They, they're persuasive. I mean, they, they are a difficult force to resist. Um, but of course the, the advisors and the courtiers that surrounded Charles have changed. But many of them are no longer there. There are younger people coming in who don't have the same sort of aristocratic reactionary backgrounds. Um, and so it is easier. But I think it's this this pressure within the palace that we, we don't see on the outside. I think that's the thing that makes being a royal parent so much more difficult than being a parent on the outside. You know, because if you're a parent on the outside and you're just an ordinary person, you, you know, you can make you can make the decision with your partner about how you bring the children up, how you how you raise them. But that's not so easy. It's not even easy for William. There will always be people say to William, no, 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 sir, you should do this or you should mm -hmm. do that. And he won't always be able to say, well, actually, I don't want to do that just because it's always been done like that. That's not a good reason to do it for doing it. He may sometimes get away with that, but not always. So I think that's that's the difference between being a royal parent and being, you know, an ordinary parent. Mm. Well, there's so much that we've talked about today that I think our listeners and, and royal followers are just fascinated by it. And these are all questions that so many of us have wondered. So we certainly appreciate your time. It's a great book. And this book is perfect for a holiday reading list. So definitely, definitely add it to the list to our, to our readers. And the book is called Gilded Youth, An Intimate History of Growing Up in the Royal Family. It's out now. And thank you so much, Tom, for being here today. Thank you very much for asking me. I enjoyed it very much.